It's time we talked about some of the very, very weirdest things in outer space. Things that hold some of the deepest mysteries about how our universe works. Black holes. You can really imagine these massive black holes and their huge death rays. That's the voice of Chiara Mingarelli. She's an award-winning astrophysicist with the Center of Computational Astrophysics in New York. And fair to say, she's obsessed by black holes, especially the weirdest and biggest ones. In December, the journal Nature announced the discovery of the most distant black hole ever known, and it's a whopper. It has a mass of 800 million times the mass of the sun. But there's something even more remarkable about this black hole. It's so ancient. It dates to a time when it seems light itself was only just beginning. From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Thaller. To me, one of the most fascinating mysteries in all of astronomy today are these supermassive black holes at the very dawn of time. We have telescopes that are so powerful, they can look at light that is extremely distant, objects that are, say, 13 billion light years away. And what that means is that the light took that long to travel to us. Now, 13 billion years ago, the universe was not very old. We think the Big Bang happened about 13.8 billion years ago. You're seeing the universe as it was less than a billion years into its life. It's a really young baby universe. You'd think that things would be kind of simple. There really hasn't been time for a lot of stars to form, for the stars to live and die and explode and form things like black holes or neutron stars. But instead, when you look out that far, you see lots of black holes. And some of these black holes are on the order of hundreds of millions of times the mass of the sun. How did they get there so fast? That's why I wanted to talk with Chiara Mingarelli. She's a rising star with a passion for researching these strange supermassive black holes. She's doing this as part of a team that works with gravitational waves, using an observatory bigger than any on Earth. Before we get to that, though, I asked Chiara to give us a sense of how a black hole actually works. A black hole is an object that has so much gravity that not even light can escape its gravitational pull. So imagine, for example, you are a kid and you're throwing a ball up, and you try to imagine how hard do you have to throw the ball up so that it doesn't come down again. This is a concept called escape velocity. It's also, you know, how fast a rocket will have to go in order to escape the uh, gravitational attraction of the Earth. And so with a black hole, the escape velocity is the speed of light. And so what would what it might look like inside the black hole is that you have light particles that are trying to rise up like water in a water fountain or the kid throwing the ball, but it always comes back down. You can never throw a ball hard enough so that it escapes this gravitational attraction of the black hole. And how would something this bizarre form? Well, it depends on how big you want to make them. There's really two distinct classes of, of black holes. So black holes that are a few times the mass of the sun, they're called stellar mass black holes. And these form from stars that are more than 25 times the mass of the sun. During the star's lifetime, there's this equal balance of, uh, of the matter from the star trying to fall in towards the center 
and pressure from inside the star pushing it out. And this pressure is perfectly balanced over the lifetime of the star. At the end of the life, what happens is that this pressure that's exerted from the interior part of the star pushing out is no longer sufficient to counteract the gravity pulling in on the star and pushing things down and compressing it. And so what happens is that the material in the star gets compressed and this often has a supernova explosion associated with it and what's left is this black hole. Now, you mentioned there were two different kinds of black holes. So what's the other kind? Well, the other kind is my favorite kind. It's a supermassive black hole. So these supermassive black holes are around a million times the mass of the sun and can even be up to 10 or 20 billion times the mass of the sun. We're not entirely sure how these form. There's different uh, formation channels that we think might be possible. One is to have a massive gas cloud early on in the universe that collapses directly. They can also form from the first stars that existed early on. These were very massive stars and they collapse and form mini black holes which eventually coalesce into a more supermassive black hole. But this would happen very quickly. To me, one of the really intriguing mysteries in astronomy right now is that we are seeing these supermassive black holes. You know, black holes, like you said, that are millions or billions of times the mass of the sun. And we're actually seeing them so far away in space that we realize that we're actually seeing them very, very long ago. And one of the questions is, how could the universe have formed something so big so fast? You know, what, what in astronomy lets you see something, say, billions of years ago? With astronomy, we're fortunate enough to have found objects called quasars. And quasars come from these very luminous black holes, and they are the most luminous objects in the universe. Because they're so bright, they're like beacons at the edge of the universe. You know, this, this is one of the, uh, the, the wonderful contradictions about black holes. By definition, a black hole is an object that no light can escape from. None. No light of any kind, any energy, any color. And yet quasars, which are supermassive black holes, are the most luminous things in the universe. They are so bright that we can see them from billions of light years away. The thing to remember is you're not actually seeing any light coming from inside the black hole itself. You're seeing amazingly spectacular, violent conditions very close to the black hole. As gas falls in towards one of these supermassive black holes, it spins up into a disk and gets hotter and hotter and brighter and brighter before that gas actually falls in. These disks are so bright and so hot, we can see them across the universe. Sometimes you can have massive jets that form this way, and particles can be accelerated almost to the speed of light. You know, black holes, as we understand them, had to do with the collapse of in the, either a star, as you mentioned, a massive star, or maybe a huge cloud somehow of dust and gas. So the, the mystery of these things is how does that happen so early in the universe? Well, this is really at the heart of the mystery. No one really knows how these supermassive black holes formed, and moreover, how you can get, as we uh, have recently discovered, a supermassive black hole that's 800 million times the mass of the sun that formed 13 billion years ago. Let me say that again, because the numbers are astounding. We're talking about a black hole that has the mass not just of a hundred suns, or a thousand, or ten thousand, or even one million suns. 
The mass of this huge ancient black hole is equivalent to 800 million suns. These things are phenomenal objects, and they really put into question what we think that we know. So now that we've observed this 800 million solar mass, supermassive black hole, we know that the seed that formed it had to be at least 10,000 times the mass of the sun. So, I mean, we, it's impossible to get a star, you know, just, just one star cannot be 10,000 times the mass of the sun because that star would kind of just, just have sort of ripped itself apart before it even formed, right? That's right. So something different had to happen with these black holes. You know, instead of it being a star that goes through a lifetime, goes supernova and dies, in the early universe, you would have had these, these giant collections of, of, of hot gas just collapsing under gravity in this, this incredibly almost kind of uncontrolled way. So this is um, a very special period in the history of the universe. The universe was undergoing its final big transition, which uh, brings it closer to what we see today. And this is called the Epic of Reionization. And this is when the first stars started to shine. What happened back then is that the universe was filled with neutral hydrogen, and it was really difficult for light particles called photons to travel anywhere. So neutral hydrogen means that you have sort of complete atoms. You have a, a nucleus of yes. an atom, and there's an electron around the nucleus. Yes, you have an electron and a proton. And light doesn't get through this gas very easily. Exactly. Light does not get through this gas very easily at all. And so what happens with these quasars and these supermassive black holes is that they start reionizing things around them. They start emitting light particles uh, together with the formations of the first stars and galaxies. And suddenly, more light can go through. And then you finally have stars that are shining, and the universe gets completely reionized, and then you can actually see things. These black holes that are in these really distant quasars are very important for reionizing the early universe. And without them, I think that it would be very difficult to do any astronomy at all. Whenever I think about this era, you know, we, we know that something hugely energetic went on in the early universe. Yeah. Something was able to pour so much energy into the gas between the galaxies that it basically ripped the electrons off the atoms and all of a sudden the universe was transparent. I, I, I sometimes sort of refer to this as the, you know, the, the party at the beginning of the universe. <laughs> Everything was really different back then. Well, I really like your analogy of um, the party at the beginning of the universe because you can really imagine these massive black holes and their huge death rays kind of sweeping through and ripping off the electrons from the protons and ionizing everything around them. Um, I'm not sure if it's more of a party. It sounds pretty terrifying. <laughs> so there's this really interesting problem with seeing that far back in time because the atoms were whole and they were very good at absorbing light. So how do you observe things that far back? So one of the ways that we can see back in time is through gravitational waves. Now, gravitational waves are ripples in the fabric of space-time that travel at the speed of light. And because this is the movement, the motion of space-time itself, it doesn't matter if there's neutral hydrogen, it doesn't matter what kind of particles are there because it is the very fabric of space-time that's moving. And nothing can get in the way of moving space-time fabric. It's like being on the boat of the, on the surface of the ocean. Sometimes your, your boat can get deviated or offset, but the ocean doesn't care about what's on its surface. The waves are going to keep going and they're going to keep crashing. So because nothing gets in their way, 
they can travel extremely far distances and we can start probing the masses of black holes that can create these gravitational waves from the very early universe. Until recently, the existence of gravitational waves was purely theoretical. They were predicted by Einstein's theory of general relativity, but for decades they remained undetected. Then in 2015, there was a flurry of excitement at the newly overhauled observatories of LIGO. That's short for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. LIGO's arrays in Louisiana and Washington State had, for the very first time, detected actual gravitational waves. The waves came from a pair of black holes colliding, 1.3 billion light-years away. Since then, LIGO has detected more gravitational waves. Last year, LIGO used them to pick up the death spiral of a pair of super-dense neutron stars. But LIGO isn't the only way to detect gravitational waves. LIGO is sensitive to gravitational waves that have high frequencies. So if you want to think about it in terms of light, these are kind of like x-rays. These are, they have a lot of energy and they're very high frequency. The gravitational waves that I work on now are very low frequencies. And these come from supermassive black hole mergers. The thing that makes these supermassive black hole collisions difficult to detect is they take a long time. We're talking objects that are very large, larger even than our solar system. So as you begin to detect the beginning of a black hole merger, as the two giant black holes begin to spin around each other, it's difficult to detect these very, very low-frequency, slow events. LIGO can detect the final moments of the collision of two normal-sized black holes. But to detect gravitational waves from supermassive black holes, you need something else something that can register those much lower frequencies. To do that, you need a much bigger observatory, far bigger than you could ever build on Earth. So there is a completely different kind of gravitational wave detector, which is the size of the galaxy. And this is called a pulsar timing array. It's a new kind of laboratory that you could not possibly build on the Earth. You need to have tens of nanoseconds of timing precision over decades. And those clocks need to be light years away, thousands of light years away. So here we use neutron stars, which sweep around a thousand times a second. They're called millisecond pulsars, and they beam radio waves at us like lighthouses. Now these can be thousands of light years away, but they're still in our own galaxy. They are stable over decades. They are nature's perfect clock. So right now we have very large radio telescopes, two of them in the U.S. that we're using to detect gravitational waves. When a gravitational wave passes by, it can cause changes in the arrival times of these flashes at the Earth. And because they are such excellent clocks, we know exactly when the signal should arrive. We measure when it does arrive and a difference between these two arrival times can signal the presence of a gravitational wave. So they have periods that are decades long, which means if you want to see one gravitational wave go by in a full cycle, it can take decades. So the sources of these kinds of gravitational waves are not the stellar mass black holes that we've already detected, but supermassive black holes that are 100 million to a billion times the mass of the sun. Take us through what that's like and what the gravitational waves created by them are like. These supermassive black holes are the strongest sources of gravitational waves in the universe. But because their periods are so long, years to decades, you can't detect them with things like LIGO. 
They just don't have enough time to detect them. They're at the wrong frequency. So with pulsar timing arrays, you're sensitive to different wavelengths of gravitational wave. And unlike LIGO that can only see the last fraction of a second of a merger, the signal is in the very low frequency band for tens of millions of years. So these signals are not just going to be a flash in the pan. These signals will get stronger and stronger and stronger over time. What hasn't happened yet is a detection of the extremely subtle ancient gravitational ripples in the background. That murmur of gravitational waves is the legacy of every galaxy collision over the history of the universe. And so this is like on a windy day on the surface of a pond, you have all of these waves that are interfering with each other, this beautiful pattern on the surface of a, of a lake or a pond. We know that galaxies have central supermassive black holes, and galaxy mergers are a fundamental part of how we understand the universe to work. When galaxies merge, their central supermassive black holes should merge. And this has been happening over the entire history of the universe. All of these supermassive black hole mergers should create a background of gravitational waves. According to all of the simulations that we've done with all of the underlying astrophysics that we understand or that we think we understand, we should be detecting the gravitational wave background in the next three to five years, but a signal should appear before then. In fact, we expect it imminently. And so this is a big mystery. If we don't detect it, then this really throws into question some really fundamental things of how we understand the universe to work. And now you're working on a project where, you know, you have the possibility of a completely new vision of what the early universe was like, and, and maybe even a window onto sort of the next physics. I mean, we, we, we know that, you know, as amazing as Einstein is, we know something has to come afterwards. That's right. We have a model for what the signal should look like. But when we actually measure the signal, we can be surprised. I can't wait to look at the data and think, hmm, that's funny. And by funny, you mean maybe a whole new world of physics. Exactly. Exactly. Who knows? I can't wait to see. Chiara Mingarelli. She's a gravitational wave astrophysicist based at the Flatiron Institute Center for Computational Astrophysics in New York. Think about a black hole that has the mass of the Earth. How much would you have to compress the Earth together before it became a black hole? And the answer is the Earth would have to be about the size of a ping pong ball. If you could get the entire Earth inside the volume of a ping pong ball, it would be dense enough to be a black hole. Now, that's incredibly dense. And an object like that, the gravitational forces would rip you apart. But supermassive black holes really aren't like that at all. As a black hole gets larger, as you put more mass into it, its volume increases. And that means it can have a lower average density. A black hole that would have about 400 million times the mass of our sun would be about the size of the orbit of Jupiter. But it would have the average density just of water. It begs the question, could you actually exist inside a black hole like that, where the gravity isn't going to rip you apart, where the conditions are much more gentle? Maybe you wouldn't even be aware of the exact instant that you crossed the event horizon. What could it be like inside a black hole? This is where modern physics kind of breaks down a little bit. 
you can actually use Einstein's equations to describe what space would be like inside a black hole, but it gets really bizarre. Space and time change places in the equation. So strangely enough, you can travel through time, but there's a direction in space you always have to go to. But could you actually exist inside the black hole? Could you move around? Could you be aware of your surroundings? What would it be like to have new physical laws, have space and time work very, very differently? Maybe there are other creatures inside the black hole. Maybe you can even communicate with them. The thing that's sort of tragic is that you can never get any information out of the black hole. That's by definition what a black hole is. No light, no signal ever gets outside. So you could never tell anybody else what it was like in your new separate universe. And this kind of begs the question, is it possible that as black holes get bigger and bigger, they could almost be thought of as universes unto themselves? If you take the entire size of the observable universe, it doesn't have to be very dense to be thought of as a supermassive black hole. Could we be, in fact, living inside the largest supermassive black hole that's possible? Could you think of our universe as one big black hole? Thanks for joining us for this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. Orbital Path is produced by David Shulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, checking their radio telescopes back at PRX. Michelle Fowler, a little bit of dead stardust, signing off for now. <laughs>